good go. I apologize. I've got some sniffles, and uh, be glad to shake your hand afterwards. Uh, but I'll, I might be blowing my nose up here some, so yeah, I apologize ahead of time. Let's pray. Father, we've uh, just been singing and praying and confessing our sin and, and really reminding ourselves of who we are. And who we are largely depends on the fact that you are a good, good God. And because of that, we are loved, loved in Jesus. And we would ask you, God, to teach us now. Uh, we would ask that you help us set aside distractions. And uh, we would ask, God, that you do things in us that would really make us to be more like Jesus. And uh, we ask this for his sake and for his glory. Amen. This morning we're starting a new series and it's about relationships. And uh, I was thinking if you were to ask most people, what's the greatest source of joy in your life? What do you think the number one answer would be? It'd be relationships, I think. Um, you know, it would be those moments and those memories with people you love. Moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and close, close friends falling in love. Having and raising kids, doing the whole you know, parenting thing, just kind of doing life together with people that matter the most to you. I think most would say the greatest source of joy in my life is relationships. On the other hand, if you were to ask people, what's the greatest source of pain in your life? What do you think the number one answer would be? It would be relationships, I'm pretty sure. When a relationship goes south in any serious way, whether that's, you know, with a friend or with a parent or with a child, if that relationship is marked by coldness, if it's marked by angry words or even worse, abuse or betrayal or the sting of divorce, what have you, is it not literally like a a knife to the heart when things like that happen? And uh, that problem in that relationship, you know, is uh, something you really can't set down. Uh, It occupies your thoughts. It can haunt your dreams. Uh, It can cloud your vision. It can obfuscate your thinking. You can look that word up later. I had to. Um, There's nothing in the world that matters, though, like relationships, for better or for worse. And loving people is a difficult business. Loving people is not for the faint of heart. Loving people is a dirty business. It's a costly endeavor, and for that reason, we decided to call this series, this time, these few weeks that we're going to be studying this, uh, love is a four-letter word. There's a dirty business about this thing of love, and yet people have always hungered for love. It's part of the human condition. When Jesus came, he brought with him a profound understanding of love and a profound ability to give love, but it cost him to do that. It cost him ridicule. Persecution cost him rejection. In fact, as most of us know, it cost him his life. And Jesus' love was quite unique. The world hadn't really seen anyone love quite the way Jesus loved. In fact, his love was so powerful, it started a movement that is, of course, still going today. A disciple of Jesus named John was writing to a community of followers one day, and he wrote these words. He said, dear friends or beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And that's kind of interesting right there. God is love. And since God is love, we would expect him more than anything else to be able to demonstrate clearly what love looks like. And, of course, he does. John goes on to write, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Another interesting phrase, this notion, this idea of living through Jesus. Of course, that's referring to embracing the teaching of Jesus, walking in that teaching, understanding the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to live through him. And John goes on to say, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I read those words, and honestly, when I read them thoughtfully, I come away just going, wow, (laughs) wow, that's packed. Uh, Anybody here up for love? I'd love to be loved. But I'm not so sure I want to love others, if I'm being honest. Especially if it leads to me having to sacrifice myself, which is what God says his son did for us. See, apparently love, the essence of love, is sacrificing oneself for someone else. Have you ever noticed how we throw around the word love? I'm sure you have. You know, I love the mountains. I love mountain biking. I love hot dogs. I love hiking. I love my smartphone. You see, that's a different kind of love than the love we just read about. It has nothing to do with personal sacrifice and everything to do with personal pleasure, right? We often say that we love things that give us pleasure, food, pets, objects. I love my car. I love my home. I love gadgets, right? We also talk about love sometimes uh, with regards to certain uh, celebrities, athletes, Actors, actresses, leaders, politicians, what have you. It's as if there's a a kind of love that seeks value through what is loved. Let me explain. Uh, I love Tim Keller's books. If you've ever heard of Tim Keller, you know Tim Keller, the, the author, Christian thinker. Reason for God, Prodigal God, Making Sense of God. I had a conversation one time with Tim Keller, and I'm pretty sure in that conversation I mentioned God. And so I think he got most of his ideas from me. I don't know if I've told you or not, but Tim and I are friends. Uh, He and I used to attend conferences together. One time, Tim picked me up from the airport so we could go to the conference together. Tim and I are pretty close buddies. We talk about every 27 years or so. Um, There's a kind of love that seeks value through what is loved. Look at me. I'm important. I know Tim. You don't, you see. Look at me, I'm important. I drive this. I live in that. I have this position, you see. There's that kind of love, you get the idea. But there is another kind of love that's much harder to explain. It's a love that adds value or gives value to that which is loved, you see. You could think of it along these lines. Uh, We have two daughters. We have two sons, too, but we have two daughters, and when they were little and growing up, uh, they had some dolls that were really their favorites. (laughs) Excuse me.
Uh, like I said, we'll shake hands after after the service. So we had uh, we had two daughters, and we gave them some American dolls. Have you heard of these things? They cost like ten thousand um, dollars, and they're beautiful. I mean, these dolls are just you know beautiful. You can get all kinds of clothes for them, this, that, and the other. They didn't really like those dolls. They liked these other dolls that, uh, over time, just became ragged dolls. Uh, these dolls got taken literally everywhere that we went. And if, if a doll got left behind somewhere, it was like massive family panic. You know the story. Got to find the doll. She won't sleep. She won't eat. She won't stop crying until we find the doll. Why? Because of the amount of love that she, either one of our daughters, poured in to their favorite dolls. And uh, you know the, the scenario. It was... Uh, very, very interesting how something that ugly could have such incredible, incredible values. These dolls would get worn out. They would be ragged on the edges. There would be scratches. There would be dirt. But none of that mattered. None of that mattered. The doll was priceless because of the love of that little girl. And so you see, there is a love that seeks value from what is loved. A love that looks for what's beautiful or successful or admired or popular and wants to attach itself to that person or, you know, to that object because of what it then can say about them, you know. I know Tim. Don't forget that. But there is a love that creates value in what is loved, like the love of a little girl for a doll. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer and thinker of the early 1900s, made this observation. He said, there is a great lesson to be learned from the story of Beauty and the Beast. And you've probably all seen that movie, or perhaps you've read it, the story of Beauty and the Beast. He says, namely, that a thing must be loved before it is actually lovable. Now, here's what's interesting about that, I think. And that is that that is exactly the human dilemma. That is our problem. I must be loved before I'm lovable. And this is the revolution that Jesus brought into the world that began this strange community that we call a church. It's why we are here. It's what you and I actually ache for, and so might I add others. The Apostle John, who wrote those words that we read just a moment ago, understood that we must be loved before we are lovable. Some of you might know this. Uh, The Apostle John had a nickname. Uh, We hear about it as we read his gospel. He's called the disciple who Jesus loved. That's right. And the interesting thing is, he gave himself this nickname. Four times in his own gospel, that's how he identifies himself. In John 13, he says, the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. In John 20, he says, she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. In John 21, he says, then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And again in John 21, Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. Now, of course, Jesus loved all of his disciples. Jesus was a master at the art of love. So what in the world is John telling us here? There's a writer, N.T. Wright, talks about this. Uh, He says that most likely, he kind of postulates, he says most likely John was the youngest 
of all of the disciples. One reason scholars think that might be the case is simply because he outlived them all. Now, many of them were put to death, but John actually seems to have outlived almost all of those first century believers. And if that is correct, that John was the youngest, we don't know for certain, but if it was correct, it's worth noting that in that day, to be young also meant to lack status. In that day, age carried status with it. Those were the good old days, I might add. But part of what John would have understood is this, that if he is the youngest disciple, then he is the least strategic disciple. If he's the youngest disciple, then he is the least mature disciple. And if he's the youngest disciple, then he is the least valued disciple in that culture. And N.T. Wright posits a theory that this nickname is just John's way of marveling in the fact that Jesus loved him at all. In other words, John uses this nickname not to say, hey, I'm loved more than all the other disciples. That's not at all what he's saying. In fact, quite the opposite. He uses it to say, I don't know why. I can't explain why. I don't deserve to be loved, but I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it that way. John was in shock. John was in shock that Jesus would love him so. He didn't deserve it. He was just a ragged fisherman. That's all he was. Invited into the life of Jesus. Invited into the ministry of Jesus. Invited into what would become the body of Jesus. And he was in shock that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus loved him with another kind of love. A different kind of love. A love that doesn't seek what is valued because uh, it wants to be valued itself, but a love that actually creates value. That is the love of Jesus. That is also the love that Jesus wants to pour into the world through his church. In other words, through you and me. Jesus took ragged people and he made them his disciples. Jesus took ragged people and he brought them into his body. Jesus took ragged people and he made this thing that today we identify as and call the church. And John wants us to understand how radical that is. And so he begins, and if you're reading out of an ESV, the English Standard Version Bible, in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Now that word beloved is kind of an old world word. We don't use that word much anymore. Uh, You you might hear it uh, at a formal wedding ceremony, Uh, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today, that type of thing. But understand, that word, even though we don't use it in common conversation much, that little word, beloved, changed the world. Now let me try and elaborate on that or explain if I can. You see, there's a question that has always vexed the human race. And the question is, what is a human being worth? What is the value of a human being? And, of course, in our day, people will get very maudlin about this, right? Uh, Very sentimental in terms of talking about the value of another human being. Go check out Hallmark, and you'll see what I'm saying. But, you know, when we talk about the value of other things, like the worth or the value of a car, it depends on its age. It depends on its condition. We can go get a Kelly book, and uh, we can look up in the Kelly Blue Book the actual value of that car. If it's a house we're talking about, well, its size, its age, its location will help to determine its value. And there's a little app you can get for your smartphone. It's called Zillow, and you can put it in an address, and you can find out exactly what the value of your neighbor's house is or the house across the street. Or your house, if you want. 
Uh, there is one house, however, if you put the address into it, uh, you'll find out that no worth, no value is actually given. It's, uh, it's a Mount Vernon address, and uh, it's, uh, its worth is not based on its age. Its worth isn't based on its condition or on its size. Its worth is actually based on who used to live there. And, of course, who was that? It was George Washington. Yeah. Nobody here could afford to purchase this home. They don't even put a price on it. It's priceless because it was his home. And when you honor that home, you honor the one who made his home there. It has a special kind of worth. It's not based on beauty. It's not based on some utilitarian value. Uh, There's a a great philosopher and Christian thinker. His name is Nick Walterstorff. Nick Walterstorff used to be at Calvin, but he was also at Yale. He was also a philosophy professor uh, at Harvard. I think still does lecture there occasionally. And he writes all about this thing, and he calls this thing that we're talking about bestowed worth. That's his term, bestowed worth. This is a worth that is not earned. It is a worth that is given to a human being. And this brings us back to that question. What's a human being worth exactly? And here you could say, and in centuries past people did say, it depends on the person. Their worth, you know, it depends on the person. And Walterstorff points out this fascinating truth. This is a brilliant man, a brilliant thinker, a philosopher, a Christian philosopher. And he says this, it turns out to be quite impossible to find a secular foundation. That is a foundation outside of God. It turns out to be quite impossible to find a secular foundation on which you can base the dignity or the value of a human being. You see, if you try to say that human beings are worthy because, and you fill in the blank, worthy because they're good looking, worthy because they're wealthy, worthy because they're intelligent, worthy because they're very resourceful or very clever. Well, what do you say then about the human being who isn't so good looking or intelligent or clever or resourceful? What if a person has a diminished capacity in some or all of these areas? Do they have diminished value is the question. And we don't want to say that. Nobody wants to say that. Um, everybody, including folks who are secular, want to believe deeply in this thing of human worth, human value. It just turns out to be really hard. Walter Storr says, impossible, in fact, to find any basis in which to ground the value of a human being except to say that there is a God, a supremely good God, and he loves Human beings, even though we're pretty ragged, we're, we're pretty unlovely, you might say. Uh, kind of like that ragged doll. But God says this. God says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? And, of course, the greatest commandment is love him, love me, God would say. That's the greatest commandment. But he says there's a second commandment just like it. And when you hear of the one, the, the second one is always juxtaposed to it. And that commandment is love your fellow rag dolls, regardless how ugly they might be. And the point is that human beings, you see, according to Walter Storr, human beings have this bestowed worth. Your worth is not based on how you look or how you perform or how you achieve or what your capabilities are in terms of thought or reasoning capacity. These things don't matter. The worth of a human being does not depend on how smart you are, how young you are, how well-connected you are, what car you drive, what house you live in, how much money you make, whatever your title is. doesn't depend on any of that. Your worth rests on one thing. 
You are a child of the king. You are the beloved of God. You are the object of his intense affection. You are a citizen of his kingdom. You have actually, Paul says, the apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, you have been named the heir along with Christ Jesus. That's remarkable, friends. And not just that, there's even more. When Jesus came, he said this. He said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. It's kind of Mount Vernon all over. Think about it. Imagine God Almighty will come live with you. Jesus will come live with you. He does that for any and all ragged human beings if you want him. If you love him. Regardless how really rough or really ugly your edges are. Okay? Now, here's where love becomes really dirty business. Here is where love becomes that four-letter word. Because there is a great problem with our being loved. And that problem is deep down inside us. You see, we as a culture, we don't like to talk about this and don't often. We know this personally, however, and we know this painfully as well. Namely this, that there is a lot about me... And a lot about you that is not lovable at all. This is, in fact, uh, the truth about something inside us. There's brokenness inside us. There's ugliness inside us. There's selfishness inside us. There's greed inside us. There's hate inside us. There's hard-heartedness inside us. But, you know, we live in a therapeutic age. And so we don't want to talk about this. In fact, what we would rather talk about instead is that, you know what, you're wonderful. You're beautiful, just exactly the way you are. You don't need to change, or you shouldn't want to change anything about yourself. But let me say, the Bible doesn't approach human worth that way. And it's it's really frank about both our great worth, but at the same time also our great problem. You see, here's the good news. The good news is that God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. In fact, you won't be able to fully appreciate just how much God loves you until you see him face to face. We get glimpses of it. We get tastes of it. As we read scripture, as we talk to God in prayer, as others love us in the name of Jesus, we get tastes of just how loved by God we are. But we won't fully appreciate it until we see him face to face. But the good news is he loves us more than we can imagine. The bad news is this. The bad news is your sin, my sin, your darkness, my darkness, your self-centeredness, my self-centeredness are way, way worse than you know. Way worse. Now, I tell you this because uh, I know... (laughs) I know where we live, we don't like thinking about this. We become experts at not letting it enter in to our mind. We forget so much of the dark stuff we do. In fact, research actually bears this out. We tend to remember good stuff about ourselves and bad stuff about others. Isn't that interesting? Good stuff about ourselves and bad stuff about others. But here's a problem. There's this dynamic that goes on in us trying to relate to Jesus. And it was St. Augustine who really pointed this out. If you've ever read any of St. Augustine's confessions, the confessions of St. Augustine, I mean, really, that's what the whole book is about. 
And basically, you could summarize the book by saying St. Augustine was a scum. I mean, that's what he's confessing. That when he opens his chest and looks inside, there's just all kinds of ugliness and darkness in there. But St. Augustine also points out how important that is because you can't really appreciate the love and forgiveness that's offered to you in Jesus if you've not done that kind of chest-opening, chest-bearing kind of operation and have some real clear sense of the ugliness that's inside. It is our ugliness that sends us running, you see, to the cross. I mean, if you only think you need a, a, a little bit of makeup, you know, to look better. You don't appreciate the makeup artist, right? But if you know just how depraved and how broken and how deeply sinful you are, well, then you appreciate the fact that of, the, of a real makeover. <laughs> wow, what a good job you did, right? See, I mean, I go through this every morning, but anyway. <laughs> There's all this dark stuff in us, if we're honest. The time uh, we chose not to help but should have. The time we chose to gossip or to slander time we chose to self-promote or to lie or to cheat or to steal or to lust or to grab instead of give or to act in anger and rage and then excuse our behavior while condemning others around us. Here's the interesting part. We are, most of us, very gracious toward ourselves. And we are quick to turn a blind eye when it comes to our offenses, but oftentimes very quick to judge others for doing exactly the same things that we do. That's just part of the ugly truth. And the Bible makes it very clear that one day I am going to stand before a just, all-knowing, holy, righteous, sinless, perfect God. And when I stand before him, what am I going to do? What argument do I have to offer in my favor? What righteousness do I bring? My righteousness is so broken. The Bible says it's like filthy rags. This God is a God who cares deeply about every human being I've hurt. He cares deeply about every human being that I've used and every human being that I've resented. And he will know every thought I ever had and every word I ever spoke and every action I ever engaged in. All of the darkness, all of the twistedness, all of the pettiness, all of the stuff I would have done if I thought I could get away with it. He's going to know all of that. So how am I going to stand before a God like that? And the truth, friends, is I can't. I can't stand before him. But here's what's amazing. The Apostle John says, this is love, not that we loved God. You see, it would really be no surprise for us to run toward God. I mean, if you think of the logic of it. I mean, God has everything I want. Beauty, wealth, gifts, goodness, life. I mean, there is a love that seeks value, that wants something back from the object that's loved, right? But John says this. John says, this is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's really the the deal there. That's the key. Do you want to know the worth of a human being? Do you want to know your worth? Look at the cross. That atoning sacrifice language. 
That's what was going on at the cross. Jesus was paying a penalty and taking the wrath of the Father that should have been poured out on me and on you. But he does that for us because he loves us. John says this love is available to you and to me. If you've, if you've never received it, you should. You should now. Uh, St. Augustine, in uh, his confession, um, makes it so clear that the thing that sent him running eventually, at first he ran away from the cross and he ran away from Christianity. He eventually, though, turned, and, turned toward the cross and ran to Jesus. And it was because, he says, of his own awareness of his brokenness and his inability to do anything about it. He tried for some number of years to fix himself. Maybe some of you have done that, tried to fix yourself. Usually we just try to fix our spouse if we're married, right? How does that work? About as well as trying to fix yourself, right? It doesn't work. You can't do it. You don't have the uh, necessary uh, wisdom, the necessary power to be able to change yourself. But Augustine says when he understood he could not change himself and he saw a solution to his brokenness in Jesus and a payment for his sin in Jesus, that is what ultimately sent him running to Jesus. And I would just say to you, if, if uh, you're in process on this, take advantage of the opportunity to talk to someone who knows Jesus. Uh, talk to me, talk to someone else here in the church, but running to the cross and receiving forgiveness is the one hope you have for change, for personal change. It's the one hope you have for forgiveness. Um, now, how do I know that? Well, not just that this love has changed my life. I would argue that this love has changed the whole world, the love of Jesus. Uh, you see, uh, it was this very idea that human beings have a worth because they are made in God's image, created in God's image, and therefore loved by God. It was this idea that created the notion of human dignity that's kind of common today. The notion of human worth. The notion that there's equal human rights for all people. You see, that was not an idea that was common in the ancient world. Not at all. This idea came out of a little country called Israel. From a rabbi called Jesus. And now it has spread all over the place, including places where it no longer has any faith foundation whatsoever. That's where this idea came from. Every human being, you see, is of equal worth and value because of God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. What's so interesting to me is that when those words of the declaration were penned, perhaps just as today, we, we really didn't, they really didn't understand just how true that is. They were denying those rights for many, many people even while declaring those rights to be true. But those rights are rooted and grounded, you understand, not in the teachings of Aristotle, not in the teachings of Plato, uh, not in the the life uh, of people like a a Genghis Khan, a Hitler, a Stalin. I mean, these people don't agree whatsoever that these truths are self-evident and should be held and upheld by all. These are truths that come that are ultimately rooted in Jesus Christ. You see, we are his community, and John tells us, beloved, or, you know, ragdolls, God's ragdolls, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. And he says that because it is so easy for me just to come to church and nod during sermons on love and stuff like that. You know, I'm pro-love. I'm pro-God. I'm very much in favor of everybody loving me. I think that's a great idea. Uh, That's wonderful. But then when I leave this place and I go into other contexts, it can be a different story. I was having breakfast at a restaurant some time ago. It was early in the morning. I had my Bible there. I was reading it. I was kind of praying as I was reading the waitress just was being a very good waitress. She would just come over constantly. Uh, are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? Yep, I'm doing fine. Thank you, I would say. And she would come over a couple minutes to go by. She'd come right back. And eventually it started to annoy me. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, are you okay, sir? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. And uh, I eventually became kind of irritated by this to the point where I know it began to show on my face and in my tone of voice. You know how this works. Uh, yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm good. You don't need to. I'm good. Thank you. I'll, I'll be fine here. I'm just reading and praying, talking to God. Um, and then she would go away and I'd start talking to God again. God, just help me love everybody you send in my life today. And it occurred to me, and it was a Holy Spirit working. What an idiot. S.I.S. You know, spiritual idiot syndrome was what was happening there. That's what was happening there. Beloved, if God so loves us or loved us, we also ought to love one another. I can be so caught up in whatever Christian stuff I'm doing that I'm not doing the very thing that Jesus does for me moment by moment by moment all day long, loving and forgiving. So you see, when he says we also ought to love one another, that means the people right around us. God is saying, here's a person, love them, care for them. I got a question, you know, it's a question I ask myself, I'll ask it of you. Are you aware that God has a whole line up of people that he wants you to actually practice loving today? And he's going to have them parade by you all day long, right? It could be a co-worker, it could be a neighbor, it could be a fellow student, Or worse, it could be someone in your family, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a child. And here's the deal. Jesus wants us to practice loving them. Because God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here's the thing, you see, and we're going to be looking at this from various angles in the weeks to come, but life is about love. If you want to be a great person, then learn to love people well. If we want to be a great church, it's not our programs, it's not a building, it's not numbers that matters. None of that matters. What matters most is how we love. Love one another and how we love out there. John says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions And truth. And oh, why did he have to say that? Because it's great to get in a room and agree that love is good and that we all ought to love one another. But it gets very messy the moment you start talking about love being action and truth. Oh, my. See, that's what makes love a four-letter word. That's what makes it a dirty business because it's all about self-sacrifice. That's actually the business of the church. It's a self-sacrificing 
business. It's the business that Jesus has given specifically to you and to me. And here's the deal. We have no hope of loving others without first embracing the love that God has for us. We really don't. You know, if we're going to be effective in loving the people around us, loving the people in our families, loving the friends in our lives, loving uh, co-workers and so, fellow students, what have you, we will need God to help us be good lovers. But here's the thing. That is exactly what God is great at. He loves helping unloving people become loving. He did that in the life of the Apostle Peter. You remember, who did Peter have trouble loving? Do you remember? Gentiles. Somebody said it. Absolutely right. I mean, he, had, he loved Jesus. He now understood Jesus was back from the dead. And uh, he was telling Jews all about Jesus all the time and, and uh, what have you. But then he went to a place called Joppa, and he's hanging out there, and he's sharing the gospel But he's not comfortable at all with the idea of taking that message about Jesus to Gentiles. Because they're outside the fold. They're different. God appears to him in a vision three times uh, to impress upon Peter that he needs to take the gospel to everyone. And this this vision is a a revelation for Peter. Okay, Okay, God, but God doesn't stop there. Remember action and truth? As soon as the third vision is over, repeats it three times... Gentiles show up to invite Peter to go with them to tell a whole family, a whole house full of people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God doesn't just tell them, you know, this is what you ought to do. God puts a person, parades a person right up under his nose that he now has to decide, will I go do it? And thank God he does. God is great at making unloving people loving. God did that with the Apostle Paul. You remember Paul was on the road to Damascus? Why was he going there? Well, he was going to round up Christians, people that said they followed this Jesus, they claimed he was the Jewish Messiah. Paul's going to round them up. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem, hopefully get some of them killed. You know, that's what Paul wanted to see happen, or Saul. And, of course, Saul meets Jesus on the road. And what does Jesus tell him? You You know, Paul, Saul, who becomes Paul, you know, Paul... What's going to happen in your life is you are going to become my mouthpiece to the Gentile world. You are going to live out. The marks are going to be on your body. You are going to live a self-sacrificial life so that the gospel can go to people who would never otherwise hear it. God is great at taking unloving people and making them loving. I love the fact that in the group of disciples that follow Jesus... You know, as Jesus chose, remember, he, he went up on a mountain, he prayed, he came down, and he selected the disciples. Two of those disciples, very interesting, one of them was Simon the Zealot. What did Simon want to have happen? He wanted to see the Roman government overthrown, right? The other disciple, Matthew, Matthew was a what? A tax collector. A, 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 he, he collaborated with the Roman government. I'm quite certain that whenever these, uh, this group of disciples traveled, uh, Jesus would have those guys be bunk buddies. Because he wanted to help the unloving become loving, you see. He he wanted them to understand that this principle of loving others extended to everybody. And uh, that was just the business that Jesus was about. Jesus is still doing this today. He's still doing this today. You know the waitress I mentioned? I, I did wake up in the midst of that stupor I was in. I felt really bad. She came back to the table, as I knew she would, and um, 
I told her, hey, you know, here, I'm reading, I'm praying. I got kind of irritated. She's kind of like, mm-hmm, you know. <laughs> and I, I apologized. I asked her to forgive me, and, and she did. God is good at helping unloving people take steps in the right direction of becoming more loving. So I gave her a really good tip. I tip real well for people who forgive me. But the, um, you see, God is just in the business of this, opening our eyes when we're blinded, letting us see when we've hurt someone or been unkind or irritable or just been ugly to them, right? The good news is that if we live in the gospel, in who Jesus is and the truth about him, his love will actually change us as we interact and do life with him. Jesus helps unloving people become loving. And he does that with his love. And he will help us change. He will help us love the way that he loves, which is sacrificially. It's the only way to really love someone is sacrificially. And to the degree that we let this, his love change us, that is the degree to which we can love well, quite frankly. So here's the assignment. I don't like the assignment, but I'm, I'm going to try to practice it this week. I'm going to ask you to practice it with me. Uh, Whether it's people in the grocery line, notice them. Or people at the gas pump, notice them. People ahead of you uh, in traffic, whether it's people in your family, notice them. Sitting down with people at the dinner table, perhaps after church, notice them. There's going to be a whole lineup of people coming your way today, tomorrow, the next day, the day after that. And Jesus wants you and me to actually practice loving them. Figuring that out sometimes can be tricky. We're going to talk more about that next week. We're going to talk about people who are wise and people who are foolish and people who are evil. And uh, the reality is it's a whole lot different loving a wise person than it is loving an evil person. But yet we're still supposed to love. And we'll get into what that can look like and what some of the difficulties are around that. Are you with me? You're going to practice loving? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. That love is demonstrated so powerfully and so clearly in the cross. We thank you for Jesus' self-sacrifice to make us clean and to make us forgive. Lord, may that love define us and shape us in ways that help us to love others. Father, we confess that loving others is hard and it is oftentimes a really dirty business. Often in difficult or messy situations, we don't even know what love should look like. We need your wisdom in those situations. Help us in those situations to know how and when to speak truth or offer forgiveness or to show mercy or to set boundaries. Help us today, God, today to practice loving the people around us. And help us learn and grow so that we can love others the way that you love us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.